Welcome back to Apple Latcha. My name is Chuck Cora. Joined as always, my counterpart, not point, Big John Eisner. John, we got a got a good show today, and uh, I will say it's a bit of a heavy topic. So, to open the show, we have a light-hearted topic. Do you want to introduce it? Yeah. Uh... So normally when we cover the Ohio Senate race, we cover like Tim Ryan, who's been on the show. And if you haven't listened to that episode, go listen to it. It was a great interview. Uh, Or we make fun of J.D. Vance, right? Because J.D. Vance. However, there's also one other guy in that race that we love to make fun of when any opportunity arises. And that's friend of the show, Josh Mandel. If you don't know Josh Mandel, please go look him up. Uh, He is a very... uh, he, I don't know how to describe him. He's like the J.R. Smith of politics. And if you know basketball, you know who J.R. Smith is. He's like the guy who loses anywhere by, when he's by himself, but wins whenever he can, like, uh, grab a hold of somebody else and, like, just have have them carry him. Like, he, like J.R. Smith got LeBron to carry him and Mandel got Trump to carry him. Anyway, Josh Mandel... He decides that he's going to do what most politicians do. He's going to go and he's going to visit people who work in, quote, blue collar jobs. And this guy looks like the guy he's with. I, I, he obviously does something in, uh, you know, the technical atmosphere, like, you know, that you would see technical schools produce. And that was Josh Mandel's point is that he wanted, and this is his semi quote, right? He wanted kids to start focusing on technical school and technical jobs like that and stop focusing on getting degrees for, quote, meaningless topics or meaningless studies. Right. So like political science, uh, what else? He he names a few, but political science was named. I think sociology, I, I think he said women's studies, women's studies one was one. Here's the kicker about all this, Chuck. Josh Mandel. <laughs> has a degree in communications. (laughs) He's not like this guy has one of one of the degrees that he says kids should stop getting. Yet, yet he's the guy like he's Chuck, he's in a weird double bind here, right? Like either he's one of these kids who made this mistake, like he's saying, and he's not qualified to run for Senate because that's pretty much his point is that it leads you to not be qualified for things or those degrees can have meaning and it still qualifies him to be the next senator from Ohio. He's kind of trapped here. Well, so I admire his vulnerability in this because he really is owning up to the fact that he is unqualified. And it shows, based on his past track record, you will recall that he has lost elections for the United States Senate in Ohio, not once, but twice before. So he's looking for a three-peat, I think is what you would call it this time. Yeah, I thought that was funny. First of all, I take no offense at this because I was a political science major, and I admit that it's mostly useless for Many I things. have two. I have two poli sci and sociology. I there's nothing I can do with that except go on. I get yeah, that. Hell, I've got a law degree and it's basically. <laughs> I I didn't use mine for four years. Well, I'm trying to. There you go. I mean, look, we're we're all trying out here. But look, Josh Mandel again. Vulnerability from him. He's the type of guy that I think will do anything to win. 
uh-huh. even if it yep. means torching himself. <laughs> and this is a, <laughs> well, and so he's got a strong track record too, which I kind of almost feel bad for the people who work at this place. I'm looking at the tweet now. It's a place called Atlantic Tool and Die. Um, I'm not mm. really sure what they do. It's some technical welding, pipe fitting, something like that. Uh, because everywhere else this guy has gone, Josh Mandel, and tweeted about it, it's just completely destroyed that business, basically. I think he went to some coffee shop before, and it was talking about mask mandates and not people not wearing masks there. And so a bunch of people protest the business, and the business was like, no, like this was not – this isn't the values that we stand for, that kind of thing. So kind of feel bad for Atlantic Tour a little bit here. <laughs> Remember when he went to the bar? And the woman who was his server came into work and she was sick. That's and he what was it like, was. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was a bar. And it, and <laughs> then she came in sick and he applauded her for that. But what? it's actually the dumbest thing you could do right now. And the fact is that no one should be paid so little that they have to do that. And right. Josh Mandel doesn't get that because he doesn't understand real world problems. Uh, and. Maybe that's because he got a communication degree. I don't know. Maybe that's what he's thinking. Uh, but, you know, and I'm not I'm not saying that I think communication degrees are absolutely worthy of, of getting. Yes, they may be limited, but if that's your passion, that's your passion. Same with political science. I'm just speaking right, for myself right. personally. No, no, I no. Will, I get it. I now, get it. what I will say, though, is I'm usually not a fan of businesses banning people pretty much uh, straightforward against that policy however yeah if you're a small business ban josh mandel from coming there unless you want your business to be completely destroyed because that's what he's going to do yeah he's pretty good at at uh not creating jobs <laughs> no he's not he's in i just want to point this out too i found this out earlier um he's okay so people that are, have not been paying attention to this guy he's a total clown and he's really just trying to, I think, attach himself as close to Trump as humanly possible in order to win this primary. And I will give him a modicum of credit. He's doing a better job at that than J.D. Vance is, although J.D. Vance trying real hard to be an asshole and, and succeeding quite well. I will point out, though, that on Josh Mandel's Twitter profile, which for the record is not blocked, it's open, it's public, uh, he says, first statewide official in Ohio to support President Trump, this is bio, Marine, censored by Twitter and Facebook. Hmm. Kind of hard to be censored by Twitter and Facebook when you're tweeting about it on your Twitter. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not an expert, John. I don't know tech policy. It's, so. it's, if that was the case, Chuck, I'm not quite sure that we'd be talking about Josh Mandel right now, <laughs> seeing that I saw that video and you saw that video on his Twitter. Yeah, it, and he got so much pickup from so, all these I mean, other news organizations. <laughs> the dude is not such. The dude's just a fucking idiot. But he's he's got uh you know his his hand is full of all these dog whistles, right? And he's blowing on each one of them, and they're whistles that'll attract the attention of people that actually are interested in stuff like that. Because tech censorship is a big thing on the right right now. So if he can claim this and people believe him, then. There's no, there's, there's, he doesn't lose, right? He, he doesn't lose because of that. He's a nothing to lose. Yeah. He has I everything mean, gained. Look, <laughs> I think it's, uh, it, Josh Mandel is one of those politicians who will watch people die from COVID, right? And a, applaud as they die because he knows that that somehow he's going to be able to manipulate that into more votes. 
that's the unfortunate part about people like Josh Mandel. It's the same with MTG. I'm sure it's the same with JD Vance. Uh, I mean, that's the problem, right? That being said, Josh Mandel is doing what most Republicans are doing right now and being somewhat successful with it, which I hate to say, but again, we talk about this all the time on the show that Democrats have to do a better job at campaigning and winning elections. They're not doing that currently. Tim Ryan's good at it. Obviously he's won a lot. I'll be looking forward to see what he kind of does, you know, in the next couple of months, but the Democrats have to create some type of dialogue to combat people like Josh Mandel. And it can't just be like Twitter accounts like ours calling him an idiot, right? Which is hilarious for us, but we're not politicians trying to win a race. So somebody's got to figure something else out. Yeah, and and it's going to be hard to tell what that is, too, because, look, this election, again, is still, like, the general election is still over a year away. And my sense is it's probably either going to be Josh Mandel or J.D. Vance, who wins the Republican primary, and either one Those of them are the going to run right this. Other than Jane Temkin, but she's kind of trailing at a she's, yeah, she's, third. She's trailed off. Now, what I will say is, is that I think Josh Mandel's lead has started to slip a little bit. It depends on what poll you look at. You know, and again, we're far out. He just posted one that it was like 37% to J.D. Vance's 13, but I'm pretty sure it's pulling in the 40s not that long ago, so... It, I I still think I'm still bullish on those two it being a toss up, but um, what I, I think Mandel is, I think Mandel's capitalizing right now though I will say that yeah for sure oh he's, better he's better still, than JD better than JD JD is doing not to like go on a tangent here but he is playing a different game which is he is getting booked on all the major cable TV shows. Like yeah, Carlson, yeah. and in order to generate donations and get some more name recognition, because Josh Mandel has a big advantage over him in Ohio. Oh, yeah. Which, despite yeah. Hillbilly LG, JD Vance, not that well known, Josh Mandel has run statewide several times. Uh, what, what will be interesting is what the political, I think, atmosphere is going to look like in 2022 when the general election happens. We don't know what that's going to look like right now, and I'll dictate a lot of how Democrats respond to that, but they have to come up with something because whoever the Republican is, they're they're automatically going to be favored to win this race, and it's because it's a difficult state to win in, and it's probably going to be a really difficult year for Democrats, so they got to have a pretty goddamn good plan. 100%. I mean, and again, you know, and, and I think the frustrating part here for me is that people who don't study politics and look at the numbers are going to be like, well, what about Senator Brown? Senator Brown is a lot like Joe Manchin, not in terms of politics. Don't get, don't go there. But in terms of winning races that sometimes he shouldn't win, he's that good, right? He's on a whole new level. And Joe Manchin is too, love him or hate him. Joe Manchin is good at winning West Virginia elections. Senator Brown, very good at winning in Ohio. Tim Ryan is not on that level as far as, polling shows right doesn't mean he can't get there but he's not on that level right now so he does have to battle with whoever wins the republican nomination it doesn't matter who wins it is going to be at that point him fighting an uphill battle absolutely there's that and the mansion comparison is actually very good from the straight politics of it because as you know, part of elections are about luck and when it comes to the overall political environment, especially a Senate race. 
Joe Manchin and Sherrod Brown are in the same electoral class, meaning the last time they ran for re-election was 2018, which was, generally speaking, a pretty good year for Democrats. They also ran in 2012, which was also a good year for Democrats. They had Barack Obama on the ballot uh, carrying um, Democrats forward, and he you know, he just killed bin Laden. He had the momentum, everything. So not only is it that they're both really good, they both got exceptionally yeah. lucky, too, in the years that they have run. And that's something that I worry about a lot because the the headwinds blowing against you like that in a state like Ohio makes it even more difficult. Well, and that's what I was going to say, too. If if Donald Trump wins in 2020, I think Tim Ryan is the favorite going into this election. But because we have a Democratic president and you, that's what happens during the midterms, people get pissed off at whoever the sitting president is and it affects those races. And in a race like Ohio, which can be a toss-up at times, it's going to sway it towards the Republican end of things. So Biden being in office, I mean, you can look at any historical election data and see that that is a bad recipe for Democrats in the midterms. Yep. And, uh, and I mean, it kind of takes a miracle for it to be otherwise. Oh, yeah. You know? And maybe... Maybe we'll see that. I don't know, uh, and I wouldn't. I hope. I mean, hope. I mean, in, in fact, I'd organize. But I, it is important to point out that a Senate election, even more so than a governor's race, is is absolutely one thousand percent always going to be a nationalized race. Meaning they're not going to be focusing as much on Ohio based issues. This is going to be a national race. I say it all the time. If you're running for the United States Senate, congratulations, you are running a presidential like campaign. Because you have to do, you have to focus even on issues that the Senate may not have any control over. You have to act as if they do because your constituents, your voters think that you do have the power over that, which is why you see a lot of, you know, Senate candidates talk about things that you're like, wait a second, (laughs) the Senate has nothing to do with this, but they have to be. It's the same reason why people asked whenever I was on the campaign trail, how I was going to work with Nancy Pelosi. Right. It's it's an unfortunate part of politics is that the vote, a lot of the voters don't don't know the structure and don't care to look into it. And and that's you know, that's you're constantly fighting that. Yeah, that's why uh, so many people asked you. Hi, I'm Dr. Miranda Melcher, host of the Just Access podcast. We bring you amazing interviews from the world of human rights and access to justice, from Dunja Miatovic, Council of Europe Commissioner for Human Rights, to Liz Evenson, International Justice Director at Human Rights Watch. Whether you're a law student or legal professional, human rights activist, or just want to stay up to date on what's happening with the world, the Just Access podcast is your go-to for inspirational stories and fascinating discussions about the state of human rights today. Search for Just Access on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you would vote to uh, um, to repeal Obamacare when you were running for a local house race. <laughs> I, kid, I mean, people ask me all the time, like, what were you asked the most? I mean, honestly, top five was, will I repeal Obamacare and... What do I think about Nancy Pelosi? I mean, those are two top five questions that I got running and, and and people can make jokes and and stereotype about West Virginia. 
I ran in one of the most educated areas of West Virginia. I ran the Eastern Panhandle, which has great paying jobs, which brings in a lot of educated young people. It still happens, guys. It, yeah, you know, it, believe it or not, <laughs> not everybody knows the political structure. It doesn't make them stupid because it's not their thing, but they're still voters. So you got to go out there. You got to get them to vote for you. Local for the most part. I mean, obviously it still matters, but, but people don't you get know, that. when you go yeah. home at, at night and watch Tucker Carlson or something, he's not going to be talking about, you know, the uh, the Rockwell plant in Jefferson County. I knock on wood now because watch him do that. <laughs> he's yeah, he's um, listening to this show, getting ideas. <laughs> yeah, fuck that guy. Uh, um, well, with that, why don't we move into some announcements before we get into the uh, main part of the show. John, take it away. All right. Well, the first thing I want to do is I want to plug a couple things. Plug our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Please go subscribe. We're really trying to get to a thousand subs because at that point we can do things a lot. We can do a lot more things than we can now. We can monetize the channel, yada, yada, yada. I don't want to bore you, but we really could use your help doing that. Please go help us on Instagram as well. We are so close to 10,000 followers on Instagram. And that may not seem like a big deal, but it is to people who like run a, a business or a podcast because we can add links and stuff into our story. It makes it a lot easier for you all to find things that we're talking about. So if we're talking about an article in an episode, we can then share it on our story. You can swipe up. You can see exactly what we're talking about. I'm telling you, it will be great for all of us. So please go like our Instagram, help us out. Tell your friends, tell your mom. If your mom doesn't have an Instagram account, create it. If your dogs don't have one, create it. Go like iPod Latcha. That's all I'm saying. Anyway. The other things I want to... I better be seeing a lot of dog <laughs> followers. I would, right? dude, I, that's I, would, all. I would love that. Um, <laughs> the, the other things I want to tell you about, don't forget to join our Discord. You can see that link or just DM us and we'll send you a link to it. A lot of things going over on Discord. We have a ton of conversations that, I mean, just hilarious half the time and stuff. I'm, I'm constantly learning from that Discord, Chuck. I really am. I don't know about you. Same. I mean, there's... Same. Oh, 100%. There's so much stuff where I'm just like, oh, okay, they, you know, this person knows more about this than I do. That's great. Last thing, uh, last two things, P.O. Box, 2466, Parkersburg, West Virginia. We've gotten books. We, I mean, great stuff. And we actually got a, I did it again. I forgot to bring it up to, to the office today. We got a children's book last week. Uh, I do want to plug that. So I will bring it on next week. And they wanted to give some away. They wanted us to contact them and do a giveaway. So look for that as well. That's great. We love that kind of stuff. And uh, patreon.com slash iPod Ledger already plugged it. And finally, our T public store. Uh, we're constantly putting up new items there for our shirts and everything like that. Make sure you go check that out. Now for the exciting part. The winner of the review this week goes to friend of the show. And I'm only saying that because I know their username and it's because it's such a, I would say almost a legendary username on our discord, Chuck. I mean, really, really up there. Animated lunch. Yes. <laughs> Animated lunch. The, yeah, this, I, I love these, these reviews. I love reading them. And here's one from animated lunch that wins this week. The title is John Dammit Vance. A great podcast 
about the most misunderstood region of the country, a great example of harm reduction, entertainment, and critical information. The reason I picked that is it's short, it's sweet, and it talks about, you know, topics that we discuss. I loved it. Animated Lunch, congratulations. DM us on any platform. Let us know where we should send your new Apple Latches stickers. Don't forget, if you want to join in on the fun, go to our Apple podcast page, leave a five-star review and type out what you think about the show. And we may be picking you. And if it's really good, we'll pick multiple. I'm Look, I have no rules. I just do what I think is great. So if, if you leave a really good one, congratulations, you're probably gonna win anyway. All right. The other giveaway, which guys, I got to tell you right now, the person who won last week has not claimed that prize. That's a that's a big deal, Chuck. That is a big deal. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, uh, so kind of keep up and, and we'll see if we're going to give that away somewhere else. Maybe we'll find out. Lastly, our winner of this week's giveaway, which again was brought to you by our friends at Gatewood Appalachia. If you haven't seen their stuff Go check it out. It's really cool shit. It's stuff that's really geared towards the region. I mean, they got like, you know, possums and uh, I think they have some Mothman stuff, if I'm not mistaken. They have a lot of really, really cool stuff. And this week they gave away a possum collectible pin, which is like the, I mean, just super cute, right? This week, our winner for that is at Hey That Nikki. Hey That Nikki. Get your pen. You win. Get your pen. You win. Uh, <laughs> and to, to claim that, again, uh, something that we should probably, I guess, review because maybe people aren't listening. You just DM us to win that, okay, if, if you're the winner, and tell us where to send it. And we are not, we do not post that on Twitter. You have to actually listen to the show to be eligible to win. That's the rub. That's uh, that's That's it, man. So congratulations, Nikki. You win. We don't ask much. We just ask that you win. <laughs> right. That you listen to the podcast that's giving you free shit. <laughs> yeah. Great deal. Yeah. Uh, and if you listen, if you um, if you continue listening, you'll hear about some other great shit, which is Cornbread Hemp, our sponsor of this show. We love Cornbread Hemp. We love their CBD products. They have them for pets. They have them for humans. They have them in gummies. Probably they for have aliens. Them in oil. They might have them for aliens too. I think. I think the R and D on that is <laughs> still uh, out is there, coming through. Yeah, out the out the PM. <laughs> yeah, Jim, as the, Jim. Uh, the co-founder. Um, you know, it is a family-owned company out of Kentucky. We love that. We love that it's not corporate funded. And what else do we love, John? Ah, oh, my friend, my friend just just came this week i think it was this week or last week uh my friend afro man came to the middle high valley he looked me up he called me i said look afro man i'm sorry i can't make it tonight to your show i know it's going to be a blast but i just can't be there i have other stuff to do and i think it was drunk appalachian history night even that he called i said but let me tell you something real quick afro man we're sponsored by this company that I know that you would like because you don't have to pick out the seeds and stems. And I kid you not, Afro Man immediately hung up, went on his phone, and ordered from Cornbread Hemp because you don't pick out the seeds and stems. It's flower only, it's full spectrum, and it's USDA certified organic, baby. Here's the thing 
I want you to go to cornbreadhemp.com right now. I want you to load up that cart. You're like, oh, could I try this? Yes, you should try it. I kid you not. When we first started talking about CBD, I was skeptical. I really was. I even said it on the podcast where we talked about it, that I hadn't always had great times with CBD. Cornbread hemp has helped me a lot. I didn't think it ever would, but it, I mean, it's so incredibly good for at least what I'm going through. So go cornbreadhemp.com. Go and load up that cart. Once you're done, I want you to go to the checkout page. Once you scroll down where it says promo code, and I want you to type in Appodlacha, A-P-P-O-D-L-A-C-H-I-A, and all of a sudden, 25% comes off your order. Again, I don't know how Jim makes money. I don't. I think he's just running a charity that gives out CBD to Appodlacha listeners because and, and I keep telling him, I said, Jim, I don't know. Can you keep doing this? He said, I love Apod Latcher listeners so much. I have to keep this going. So there it is. It's going. I don't know when it's going to end. So go get it now. That's right. Go get it now. And we thank the good people at Cornbread Hemp for sponsoring this show. But with that being said, let's kick it on over to our interview. We have a great one for y'all today. We spoke with two journalists, Amelia Nisley, who is a Report for America Corps member covering poverty for the Mountain State Spotlight, and Molly Bourne, who's a freelance journalist and multimedia producer based in Charleston, who reported on this story on behalf of an organization called the Ground Truth Project. These two journalists collaborated together on this incredibly explosive and very important story about the state of foster care in West Virginia. This story is so important and I think surprising and I think a little disturbing too, and you'll find out why. Um, But also, this is just a really stellar example of why local journalism and local reporting matter so much. The work that Amelia and Molly did on this story over the course of, I think, a year, maybe more, uh, is really important and something that, but for them, would not have happened. And so, John, what are your thoughts on all this? Incredibly insightful. I mean, we've We've had journalists on in the past and every time it kind of just like, look, I, I, we preach all the time. Local journalism is key. It's a really important thing that goes on. But even, even as we preach that, I think sometimes, at least I do, I forget how important it is, right? Like I, you know, I say it because I do think it, but then I start to hear these stories again. And I'm like, holy shit, I need to say this even more than I do now because it is that important. You, do you think that anybody at the national level would ever cover this? No, but these two did because it's one, their job and two, it's their passion, which that's what I keep finding about local journalists the most, right? Is that they are the most passionate people when it comes to reporting newsworthy things and doing investigations like this. Y'all, you have to listen to this interview because it will open your eyes to what's you know, really going on in a state like West Virginia, but also it will open your eyes what's going on in maybe the state that you're living in or maybe you're related to. You got to listen because it is eye-opening. Absolutely. This is something that I think you and I both really didn't know much about going into this conversation, and I imagine a lot of people don't. And so we're really grateful for the work that Molly and Amelia did on this story. So without further ado, let's kick it on over to our interview. Maybe some days I don't feel free. I'm probably out here with everyone. We are really 
happy to have you all on the show to talk about such an important project that the two of you are working on. I'm wondering first if, you know, you all might be able to give some context to this story. How did this reporting come about? How did both of you end up getting started on it, collaborating on it? What was sort of the context surrounding this? Um, so in 2019, I was working at the Charleston Gazette Mail covering poverty and was going through a lawsuit that had been filed on behalf of foster kids in West Virginia. And there was just one paragraph in this very lengthy suit that alleged that West Virginia children were sent to a facility in Ohio where they were forced to do manual labor. And that alone just really stuck with me and blew my mind. And as a West Virginia native who I care a lot about foster care. I had no idea that was going on. So I started looking into the specific facility, but then I had a baby, went on maternity leave, and ended up changing jobs and going to Mountain State Spotlight. So when I went to Mountain State Spotlight, which I knew would give me a platform to do more investigative work, I wanted to look into out-of-state facilities and quickly learned that this was a much bigger problem. And that led me to call Molly. I did not know Molly that well at the time, but I knew her as an incredibly fierce reporter, really good with investigations. And so I pretty much cold called her and said, help me investigate Washington foster care. And she said, yes. And so we started working on this last fall together. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I was actually hoping that, you know, you all could explain a little bit about what your individual roles were on this project because you're working collaboratively on this reporting, but you each had, I guess, somewhat different lanes. Is that right? Yeah, and I can I can tell you how I got involved, too. I um, The Ground Truth Project has been funding reporting efforts in Appalachia for a couple of years now, mostly through Report for America. Um, and I was a Report for America fellow in 2018, working for West Virginia Public Broadcasting and was interested in foster care and kids issues at that time. And then I got, it was right before COVID, really, a couple months before COVID, I got um, their Appalachian Reporting Grant, which was a, a grant for three fellows to spend time working on uh, an accountability project in the region. Um, it didn't have to be in West Virginia. And um I pitched something that uh, was actually an audio project, but I couldn't do that due to COVID. I mean, the idea of spending time in living rooms and, and kitchens with families during the pandemic was just not going to fly. Um, so when Amelia called, it felt like um, it, it just, it all, all the pieces fell into place because I still wanted to work on this. I still wanted to do something about kids and families in foster care, but I didn't know how to sort of pivot in the middle of a pandemic when everything else was so fraught. And um, so, yeah, it was just to answer your question, we, as Amelia mentioned, she took the lead on the first story. I took the lead on the second and third stories, um, but like it was a collaborative process throughout um, as well, so. And I want to emphasize, too, the reason I called Molly, besides she's an amazing reporter, is just knowing that this was going to be a very daunting project. Foster care is incredibly complex. I kind of knew what I wanted to look into. Molly had some ideas. But we actually spent a lot of last year, last fall, just talking to people on background and saying, what should we be looking at? And that's really how our stories emerged, was listening to not only stakeholders in the foster care system and foster parents, but even our readers, and trying to source 
if we're going to spend a year, which at the time we didn't know it would be a full year, but if we're going to take several months to look into this, we want to really hit the things that West Virginians need to know about the system. And there are so many other things that we could report on as well. I think I also would add maybe another sort of delineation of where we, like our focus is for the, this series. Um, I kind of focused a little bit more on the in-state the realities of kids being placed in state within the system. Um, and Amelia took the lead on the out of state piece. So that's kind of another way to, that we sort of, you might separate it out. Yeah. And, and so one of the biggest things I think that stuck out to me the most is just these serious cases of abuse and neglect. And, and the word that you all use is restraint in a lot of these cases involving really small children and really, really young children. And I'm so I'm wondering, you know, what's what's sort of the through line there that sticks out the most to you? Because this is really troubling these these allegations or I guess, uh, you know, some of them are substantiated. They're not just allegations. They're factual, correct? There are both. Yeah, there are allegations and substantiated reports as well. And these are both substantiated by our own state inspectors with DHHR and out-of-state inspectors. I think my biggest takeaway was going through public records. I found at least 22 substantiated accounts of abuse and neglect at these out-of-state facilities. And there were many allegations of sexual assault. And also, as you mentioned, a lot of misuse of restraints. And Restraints can be chemical, they can be a straitjacket, but when you think about children as young as six to eight years old being restrained improperly, how can that not break your heart? Um, and there were a lot of reports of them not telling parents that the kids had been restrained. So I think that's what really stood out to me is that it wasn't just, oh, I found this one time in 2015, it was an ongoing issue. We found misuse of restraints at 75% of the facilities of the reviews. <laughs> Sorry. Um, we found misuse of restraints at 75% of the facilities of the reviews that we were able to get through DHHR. And I think also the biggest takeaway, and this comes up in all three of our stories, is that DHHR just won't answer questions about it. They won't say whether they knew that it was happening. They didn't know it was happening. We found records where they left kids in facilities where abuse was happening, and they just wouldn't talk about it. And I should add, too, I think that was probably, I should have started with that. My biggest takeaway was when we realized that kids were left in the facilities, that was a big moment for us, I think, because we knew it was happening. But then when we saw documents that actually came in from the Department of Ed with a FOIA request with them that showed kids were still there months later, that was a very um, surprising and, and sad moment for us as the reporters. I, I read through this again today because... I wanted to know if I had missed anything or if I had overlooked anything. And it, unfortunately I hadn't because uh, I was really hoping that there was like some, uh, whenever you read something, you're like, you know, where, where am I going to get the payoff? There's no payoff in this story. So if you're listening to this right now, there's no happy ending. Uh, the, the question that I kind of been faced with is that since this continues to happen and we keep pushing, I saw 71% uh, it's higher now, 71% than it was 10 years ago when it comes to kids in the foster system in West Virginia. Have you all reached out and asked like, you know, what's causing this? I mean, everybody's going to go to the drugs and, and things like that, but have you reached out and tried to get information and, and what have you heard back on that? Um, I think we do often hear 
that opioids are to blame. And I do think the data that we do have so far does bear that out, that there are um, and it, many kids, most kids, I think, that are entering into the system have had some, have had a parent um, dealing with some substance use disorder or having some interaction um, with the criminal justice system due to drug abuse. But, you know, I think one thing that was a big takeaway for me as we were getting more and more mired in this was how little we hear people talking about this on the state level, right? Like, um, and we touched on this in the stories that, um, you know, if that if lawmakers were willing to talk to us about it, they really demonstrated a very basic understanding of the problem. Um, sometimes people in positions of power uh, in the state legislature would just not talk to us at all. And that really boggles the mind. We were talking about kids here. Yeah, kids don't pay taxes, but they're the most vulnerable uh, people in in our state, the kids in the system, and they don't have a voice. So that really struck me. I mean, and and I and I heard that. I don't know that this was actually necessarily in the story, but I heard that uh, time and again from social workers, just being like, "Yeah, you know, I really wish." like this was something on that, that felt top of mind, right? Like that this was something that, that our leaders, that our top leaders would spend time talking about because it is urgent. And, and I think just lastly, um, th there, there are shortages of foster families, foster parents. There are shortages of child protective service workers in other states. How often that happens, it's, it's hard to quantify. But we know living here in West Virginia that there are countless other challenges that kids are facing that make those shortages all the more urgent. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that too is we can't negate the role of poverty in this and generational trauma. So now you have sometimes grandparents who were in the foster system raising grandchildren, right? And yeah, I just think that's worth noting that it's not just drugs, we can't minimize the role of the opioid crisis in the foster care crisis. However, poverty is linked to a lot of adverse outcomes for children and families. So when you look particularly at the coal fields or really many parts of West Virginia, that is certainly a part of that. And that's a very complex issue to tackle as well. Yeah, I mean, I, this whole thing is is super complex. I mean, there is, unfortunately, I mean, when you look at it, I mean, you, you all may have a different take on this. It doesn't seem like there's a one one size fits all solution to this issue uh, because of unfortunately how intertwined it is now into the foster system in West Virginia. Now you'd mentioned earlier about you kind of reached out to some of the officials and asked for you know their opinions on things and and they kind of went around you and and wouldn't answer the question. Then you also talked a little bit about how you know you talked to social workers. Were you getting more responses from the, the social workers themselves rather than the people at the top? I mean, were you able to get information from them or, or was that difficult as well? I think this was a story that was probably the hardest story I've ever worked on. I've been a journalist for 10 years and wow. um, this was something that 
I think people struggled to talk about at multiple levels for multiple reasons, right? Like, I think that it was clear that some of the lawmakers that we talked to didn't really, like, this wasn't on their radar. I think it was difficult for some social workers and families to talk about this, to be candid about it, because they feared retaliation. And um, this is something that we saw documented in the report uh, this was in the ombudsman's report, right, Amelia? This was, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. This was something we saw documented in the report um, that was drafted this year by the person, the ombudsman, so who's who's tasked with like fielding complaints and concerns from families um, in the system. Um, that people, I think, people were just like, you know, if I talk, like, is something going to happen, uh, or am I going to get punished for for speaking candidly? Uh, but I do. I, you know, I want to commend the families that I talked to who were willing to be, be open about their experiences and, you know, do late night, uh, you know, fact, fact checking and just like, Hey, can you go over that one more time for me? I mean, I think that, um, I know one family that I talked to in particular who, who featured prominently in the second story, um, they wanted nothing more than to be foster parents for years and just found the system to be utterly, uh, complex to be sure, but also um, while rewarding, really, really challenging with some of the the problems within the agency. I would definitely echo what Molly said as far as I've also been a reporter for 10 years and this was by far the hardest story I've ever worked on. And the only thing I would add, because my experiences mirror hers, we also talk, both talked to families and children we did not include in the story because mm-hmm. Some of their stories were so traumatic and didn't really fit what we were trying to do, or you know, they just weren't the right fit for the story for various reasons. And I think that's important to note because living in Appalachia, particularly West Virginia, we are used to reporters coming in, finding their soundbite and leaving. So it was really important to us to not just have, oh great, you were traumatized by the system, check that off the to-do list, let's move on. We really it was a very long haul to find the right kid and families to feature in our stories because we wanted to make sure that empathy came through in our reporting and that we we were working really hard to not re-traumatize the people we were interviewing. I'm so glad that you mentioned that, that Amelia mentioned that about like, like I think that sometimes it can be difficult for people who aren't journalists to understand like how we, like how, like what the process is like, you know, and I like, I love talking about that and I think one thing that, and I'm so glad that you mentioned that, Amelia, like one thing to emphasize was the like care with which we did these stories, you know, like um, I remember asking a woman that I interviewed a couple of times, like, if this isn't a good time, like, I know we plan to talk at this time, but like, if you're just, if this is like too much to unpack today, like the trauma that you faced, we don't have to do that today. Or just like sort of explaining to people who've never been interviewed before, hey, this is like, this is who we are. This is what we're working on. This, these are, you know, this is, this is what an interview dynamic looks like. And we're happy to like illuminate that further if that's confusing or answer any questions that you might have. And I think that's a reason that like this kind of reporting can be done. Like the, this is why it's important that we're, you know, doing these stories, living, that we're living here. We're telling these stories, telling our own stories here in the region. Like we're not swooping in, like we have that buy-in, not just because we live here, but also I think because we give a shit. 
don't know if I can say shit, but. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. No problem at all with that. So I'm glad that you all brought up the family component because I think that that was actually one of the, the most powerful parts of this. And what sticks out to me is the story of a kid who is mentioned in the story. His name is Mason. He's 15 years old at the time that you all wrote this. Something that stuck out to me that was honestly so heartbreaking was that he, and this is these are quotes that he said in this story. He said, quote, I was too messed up for foster programs. That's truly heartbreaking that a 15 year old had that realization and it really says something at least to me about how the foster system failed him it sounds like his story was i mean it's i'm sure it was one of like what hundreds or thousands i mean how many kids are we talking about here how many are have a story like mason's so in general, we have about 7,000 kids in foster care, but we know last year around 10,000 kids, more than 10,000 kids, touched the foster care system at some point in time. And when it comes to out-of-state placements, we send around 400 kids out of state every month. From what I've found in, in interviewing both social workers and kids on and off the record, it seems like these kids move around a lot. I don't know if it's I really don't know why, to be honest. It, it doesn't seem like it's always because they're getting in trouble. It just seems like there's a lot of instability once they go out of state. And with Mason, I felt incredibly drawn to his story, mostly because he told me he wanted to tell it to help other kids in his situation. And we had a lot of talks about, hey, for the wow. rest of your life, when somebody Googles your name, this is what they're going to read about you. And he was okay with that. And I think that's incredibly brave and powerful for a 15-year-old boy to take that responsibility on and trust us as reporters to tell his story. Yeah. Yeah, that's in incredible. I think one thing we did kind of maybe miss on, we, we keep talking about abuse, but when we when you read this, I mean, it goes beyond what maybe you picture as just you know, abuse, because we talked about restraints, but we're talking about allegations of like sexual assault, rape. I mean, there were a lot of really massive red flags here. So it blows my mind. And and I don't have a question on that. I have a question with something else, but I wanted to point that out for the people listening and maybe who mm -hmm. haven't read this, uh, that this is, I mean, it, it goes well mm -hmm. into detail about some of these allegations that are, are really, really uh, red flags. My question I guess becomes what is how do y'all see the comparison between those out of state facilities and in state facilities? I know that we have a shortage, but are we seeing those problems in this state or is it only out of state that we're seeing these issues? I really can't answer that because I, I made the decision to only look into out of state facilities. Okay. One thing I will say though that is a thread between both is that a family home would always be better. Even your best run facility is going to, in some way, affect that child for the rest of their lives. So that would be really the only thing I could comment. But I think that's important to note that the foster home shortage is extremely key in this issue. We got a, um, as you know, the, the story details how difficult the FOIA process was for us. Yeah. We got a FOIA back pretty late in the reporting game that um, was asking, we asked for some in-state records, some reports that would kind of give us a sense of what that looked like in-state. Um, 
unfortunately, the um, request wasn't fulfilled properly, so it's sort of hard to know exactly, but what I gleaned from going through it um, was that the kinds of complaints that we were seeing in those facilities, the extreme ones, or not complaints rather, but the, ex the extreme um, allegations and sometimes substantiated problems um, were, were not the kinds of things that we were seeing within the state of West Virginia's facilities. Um, there were issues, there were some issues, I think this would be a good follow-up story um, once we kind of narrow down exactly, um, you know, like it was even unclear kind of how they monitor these facilities in-state, right? Like, and we also asked for, um, for in-state and out-of-state, um, like what kinds of complaints have been registered against individual foster homes, for instance. And this was just another of the, of the many um, examples of um, unfulfilled or incomplete requests back, which make, which it, it's so challenging as a reporter because you want to provide a full picture. Um, but the best, to the best of our knowledge at this point, the kinds of, you know, extreme allegations that we saw in those out-of-state facilities were not something that I saw in my cursory look at, at the, what was in state. And John, I want to follow up on what you said about the findings, because I feel like I did not do a good job earlier summarizing the findings. So I want to add a little bit to that for listeners. But I would say a few that really stood out to me was DHHR inspectors actually substantiated what that lawsuit had said about kids being subjected to manual labor. So we had kids in a field multiple hours a day, sometimes young children, sometimes on extreme behavioral medication using sharp blades to cut down weeds. That same facility in Ohio had what was called deplorable boys' bathroom facilities, rotting floorboards, showers not working. There was a facility in Pennsylvania that in 2015, at least then, kids could be in a timeout chair facing a wall for up to two weeks. Kids weren't allowed to speak to one another except for maybe a short amount of time once per day. Kids were sharing clothing, like they had no clothing that belonged to them. It was just all kind of put in a pile, maybe washed, maybe not. So I think things like that are particular examples that really stood out to me. And just to reiterate, these were in DHHR inspections. These were things that they were finding and still leaving the children in these facilities. It's like they were they were in max security prison. Yeah, it's not like prison. I mean, that, that's, and wow. And when you go on the websites for these facilities, they make it seem like this is just going to change your child's life. They're going to be so much better when they come out. And so you can imagine if you're a parent whose child has gone into the system and you see this is where the state is sending them on the surface, you may not feel that you need to do that much research on it. And a lot of these parents don't have the financial means to visit their child. So that's why the transparency aspect between the state and the parents is so key. So when you read something like this facility has failed to notify the parents they restrained their child, it's probably much deeper than that. They're probably not telling the parents a lot of things that are going on in these facilities. And I just wanted to, to add something to what Amelia said. Um, in West Virginia, like, like, we, like we said, we don't have enough facilities. So what that means is that we don't have, like if a child has a particular behavioral issue that, um, that we can't address here, that might be a reason that they go out of state. Um, and we know 
kind of anecdotally, and I think that our research does support too, that like writ large, there's not, there's a shortage of mental health providers. I mean, I, I lived in Mingo County in 2018 and remember they're not, they're just being far afield to get, you know, some medical providers of all kinds, right? Like we know, especially in the coal fields and, and, and other sort of more rural pockets of the state, it's hard to find people who can specialize in this type of, uh, and in certain uh, behavioral health problems. Um, but there are, you know, certain things that can be done to like get those kids services in their homes where they can, you know, live with a family, a foster family, and then get the services that they need. But those are certainly, that those need to be majorly uh, invested in more. I know that you've kind of alluded to the lack of response or maybe mum response from some of the government entities. I'm I'm just kind of curious, like, what has the response truly been? I, I mean, have you heard from, like, the governor's office? Have they opined on this? Because the reason why I ask is this is just such a egregious thing, this whole, this whole story, this whole system that, you know, I would think that somebody in some official decision-making capacity would want to say something about it, would want to give a response and would want to assure the public that there'd be some accountability. We have not heard back from DHHR officials at all. Um, We reached out to them again after it published and haven't heard back. I've heard from uh, just a few lawmakers, Senate Minority Leader Stephen Baldwin, who is a Democrat from Greenbrier County, is reached out to me and said he'll be requesting inspection reports and other documentation from DHHR. Other than that, um, very, very few. I did hear from Senate President Craig Blair. He did not do an interview with me. He did text me a few statements, but in fact, his statement was that the legislature monitors DHHR and foster care. And so I was quick to respond and say, well, then should you be held accountable for this? And did you know and did not receive a response back from him? So we received a lot of great feedback from West Virginians, but and we're thankful for that. But as far as people in power, we have not heard from the governor or really um, many people. So Unbelievable. And really, even just hearing back from the small group of people after is more than we heard from during the reporting process. I mean, we were calling people over this last year with these allegations saying, here's what we're finding, and we were still not hearing anything about it back for interviews wow i know i know craig blair a little bit and and uh that doesn't shock me uh he i'll stop there anyway uh the big thing that i want to know is where do you all and your reporting go from here what what can people expect i mean are you gonna will you jump back in and do another investigation on foster care do you have something else that you've got lined up that you're like we're you know we're we're gung-ho on this i mean what's next well for me personally i'll be having a baby any that is true now, so i'm gonna take a little time off um yeah, take a couple of days take a couple yeah i'm gonna take a couple of days have this baby um you know i don't know what's next but i what i would like to do next is focus on the mental health care aspect because we're not going to easily fix foster care, right? And DHHR has even said we're bracing ourselves for another wave of kids with what our drug crisis numbers are looking like during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't think the answer is more in-state residential facilities and experts don't think that either. But one of the key things in prevention, which Molly wrote so well about, is mental health care and community-based services. I don't think, and from what I've found in the little research I've done, I don't think we really have a grasp on how limited our mental health care is for our kids in the state. So that's really where I would like to go next if I'm given the opportunity to do a big project. Um, I would really like to hone in on, okay, what are the shortages? Like, let's look at the coal fields. How many mental health providers do we have for these kids? And because I think that's a, a, a very low entry for our state to invest in prevention for these kids. I think, um, so I should note that um, while I was working with Mountain State Spotlight on this project as a grant recipient through Ground Truth, I'm a freelance journalist. Um, I live in Charleston and I've written for um, a number of outlets and also I'm a documentary producer working on a forthcoming film with Elaine Sheldon. So I'm doing a bunch of different things, kind of got a lot of irons in the fire. I don't know when I'll be able to return to this topic um, right away. However, I am interested in having, like I would like to get a fuller picture of what the in-state facilities are like. As we mentioned, we didn't really get a chance to like sort of get as much on those as we wanted. But also, um, this is something that I touched on in, um, or that we touched on in the second story about the relationship between um, the private agencies and the and DHHR. So just like, I think most people, I didn't know this really before we started reporting the story, but there's DHHR and then there's 11 agencies the DHHR contracts with to help them deal with the influx of foster kids that they have. And more, they're, they're ceding more and more responsibility uh, to these agencies, which aren't subject to the same FOIA laws, for instance, as DHHR is, which are, are, I think is doing, in many cases, they're doing a really honorable job of helping to get get some support. I mean, we, in, we talked about, um, in the second piece, just the idea of like families going for a long, 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 long time without hearing from a child protective service worker, um, which is a huge problem and consistent. And that's something that those private agencies are certainly helping to stem the tide on. However, I wonder kind of, I want to know more about that dynamic and like, are we going to see this, these types of services continue to be farmed out to these private agencies um, due to the rise in numbers. And what does that say about, you know, again, not even just the FOIA laws and like the, pu the public facing part of this, which, you know, what does that say about, about us? And, and is that maybe, is that the right approach? Other states have taken the private agency route, um, but I think there's, uh, it's worthy of, of uh, a closer look just to kind of see how those, those dynamics are working. Um, and I'm also just lastly, like, I, I'd really love to, um, like, it's so funny. We did this, like, during a pandemic, right, whenever we were, like, we could barely work together. Um, we were trying to reach people when they were just trying to get through their day-to-day. -day. I, I wonder what this would have been like in a normal reporting, normal reporting experience. Um, I'm really interested in 
how many kids, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids that in West Virginia that we send to placements in state that are like, you know, maybe they're living in Logan and they're in a placement in Wheeling. They're from Martinsburg, they're living in a placement in Parkersburg. All the time, every day, hundreds and hundreds of kids. And that has produced a lot of instability in kids' lives. And one social tr- worker I talked to was like, you know, that's, it's hard to get at. And, and unfortunately, we, um, I, I asked for some information on that that DHHR did not provide me. But um, I think we need to, like, consider further, like, what happens, and I'm sorry, I'm, like, really rambling, but what happens to, what happens to those kids, right? Like, after you've been so far from your home and you end up back, that disruption can live with you for a really long time. And this is, this is, yeah, tons of kids experience this in West Virginia foster care. I have one more, I have one more thing to add as well. I will be coming back from leave right in time for the legislative session. And one of our mottos at Mount State Spotlight, I think it's our unofficial motto, is sustained outrage. So yeah, I'm going to be at the Capitol, seeing if they're talking about this and seeing if the law, the few lawmakers who have promised me they're going to bring this up, I'm going to see if that happens. And last legislative session, we did nothing on foster care, which yes, there was a pandemic going on that did not negate this other crisis, right? So that will certainly be a part of my upcoming reporting is either telling you what they're doing or maybe we're telling you what they're not doing. And I think it's also important to note, Molly and I are big advocates for local reporting. We both are passionate about being in West Virginia as reporters. Our state could use a full-time foster care reporter. We don't have that right now. I cover poverty. Foster care is a a corner of what I do. And um, I wish it was more, but there are other parts of my job that I think I have to get to, right, that that are important. And I... I really hope that we can see more reporters come and focus on these topics because they they need a lot of attention. It took a year to do these three stories. And there are so many other parts of the system that need that critical investigative look. Absolutely. You're so right on that. And first of all, I'm very much looking forward to uh, uh, your all's reporting next legislative session. And I'm glad that you mentioned that too, just about uh, local reporting in general. This this story, this investigation is is a perfect perfect piece of evidence of why local reporting matters so much and why the work that you all are doing is so important. Because in my view, but for the two of you, these stories, Mason's story and all the countless other children that you talked to or didn't talk to, their story wouldn't be told. And that's something that is so important about all of this. And so I just, I really appreciate the work that you all do day to day, and especially on this, very grateful for it. And definitely putting in a pitch for um, for our listeners to check out the Mountain State Spotlight and become a subscriber, uh, because it's really important to have independent um, local journalism to to work on this stuff, to talk about these things, because it's pretty clear that, that our government officials aren't wanting to uh to talk about it so thank you both so much and really appreciate y'all coming on and, and sharing this with us thanks for having us yeah thank you guys i, I want to say like this we want to get reach on these pieces so that different eyes and ears see it and hear it and um it means a lot to be featured on this podcast and we know that you know this might we, to, to to achieve some amount of change, we have to continue the conversation and mm-hmm. like 
this is a really great way to do that. So we're really grateful for the opportunity. 100%. We're happy to help. With my head up in clouds, not me and mine to go All right, that was our interview with Amelia and Molly from Mountain State Spotlight and Ground Truth Project, respectively. Uh, again, really appreciate them coming on and talking about such an important issue. Uh, but to lighten the mood, why don't we kick it on over to the last segment of this show. You know what it is by now. It's the beef. They call him the Chris Pratt of beef because he was originally cast to play Mario, but turned it down so that he could keep delivering on your favorite part of the show, ladies and gentlemen, so modest and de- just dedicated to this work of uncovering the real beef in society and dragging it from the sewers into the light of day, much like Mario would be doing whatever the fuck it is he does. Whatever. I was going to make an analogy to pipes and sewers, but here we are. I'm not cutting any of this. <laughs> the hell with it. Beef with Big John. Ladies and gentlemen and gender non-binary folks worldwide, we are pleased to present to you the beef-eating mouth of the South coming to you live from a foreclosed Ponderosa back-to-back buffet world champion beef with the Big John. Literally, as Chuck is doing that, well, actually, right before you did that intro, I was tweeting. I was typing out a tweet, and I was like, man, I forgot. I, f- I, f- I was going to post this last week. I talked about it, about, like, posting, like, um, somebody writing, like, a 30-second intro song to to Beef with Big John. We talked about that last week, right? When Because I said, <laughs> yours are good, but, like, you shouldn't have to spend the time to do this. We, sh- You know, if we can get, like, a really, like, catchy thing right beforehand, that'd be great. Anyway. <laughs> that was just hilarious. Uh, th- this week's beef is a little different, man. It is. I found, uh, I- I've learned recently that there is kind of even more of a stereotype True. between like what maybe Northern Northerners think of like Southerners. I've started to see that a lot on Twitter is like, you know, people from the North being like, man, I moved to Appalachia and when I lived in, you know, up north, people would just make fun of these people or tell us about how bad they were, right? But I got down here and it's a totally different world, which you and I have been preaching the entire time. But, but we're also guilty of a few things. Not, maybe not as much like the people who listen to the show, but I think there's people in general who are guilty in Appalachia of maybe stereotyping like midwesterners that's what i keep learning it's like a beef the reason i keep learning this like a meta beef because you're beefing yourself yes wow it's very weird Wild it's very shit. weird right i'm using this as like a a moment to for all of us to kind of sit back and go okay we don't want people stereotyping us so we need to stop stereotyping other people and the, and the reason this got brought up i've talked about it i think one other time i transferred my score I guess I, I, maybe I don't think I actually announced this yet. I transferred my bar exam score, Chuck, you know this, uh, to the great state of Minnesota. And a lot of people are like, what the hell? Right. Uh, a lot, a lot of that, a lot goes into that. But anyway, when I did that, Chuck, I got hit with DMS of people being like telling me why Minnesota 
and the Midwest was was such a bad place. I haven't even said I'm going, like I'm moving there. I just am getting licensed there. Uh, so that, you know, obviously, who knows what's going to happen. Were, were, were they all from Wisconsin? Cause that, no, no, they were all from Appalachia. That's what I'm saying. There's some ma- major beef from... That, that's what I'm saying. It's like people, and some of them were innocent, right? Like the snow's bad there. Okay. I get that, right? And again, I'm not, there's nothing that says I'm moving there. I'm just getting licensed there. Anyway, but there were also some that I was getting where people were like, the people are terrible in Minnesota and people are terrible in the Midwest. Like I was getting DMs like that. I kid you not. All of the contact that I've had with people in Minnesota at the bar who, Chuck, I'm sure your wife has had to talk to people in in the bar They're not always the nicest people. They're usually pretty annoyed with people calling. Minnesota, nicest people I've ever talked to when it comes to anything legal, right? Because a lot of times they kind of make you feel down. Not these guys. They are great, super nice. And it's got me thinking like, we preach on the show, stop stereotyping people because we don't want to be stereotyped. But then I was getting, I mean, literally dozens of DMs of people saying like, how bad of a place this was. <laughs> like, even if you go look at my Facebook, like when I posted that I was doing that, people were telling me like, shit, like go check the water. Right. When, and I was like, wait a second. First off, I was For like, first what? off, <laughs> I live in, uh, I go check the fucking I water. Grew West up, it's a huge I grew up in Parkersburg. Don't tell me check the fucking water anywhere. And two, I, I did. I, I looked it up. I Googled it. Cause I wanted to know Chuck. I had to know at that point. Water plus. It turns out Minnesota. The land of 10,000 lakes. They have a shitload of water. Minnesota and Minneapolis in general have like the number one water source in the entire country. So I don't know what the hell people are talking about. I swear people are just like, I think it's a lot like when we started this podcast, I really had a problem with people. I wasn't angry at the people leaving, but I would do everything I could to make sure that somebody wanted to stay. And I think that happens a lot with Appalachians, but it turns into us stereotyping other people and telling people why they shouldn't leave rather than explaining why people should stay. And again, this doesn't mean I'm leaving or anything like that, but people assumed that I was and immediately went on a, these people or this area is bad and here's why, rather than a, here's why Appalachia is good. And that just, it really bothered me all week because I was like, man, the whole point to like convincing people to stay shouldn't be talking shit on somewhere else. It should be uplifting, you know, Appalachia. Yeah, this isn't a presidential election <laughs> where you have to take the 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 better of the two enemy. What is it? The lesser of the two evils. evils. And first of all, I would just say I have a soft spot for the Midwest, obviously, because I yeah. lived there for three years. I lived in Michigan, and I like the Midwest. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, the weather is pretty harsh sure. in the winter, but that is because it's north of the equator. And that's that's uh, a fair thing to say, yeah. though, right? Like, oh, the weather's bad. Okay, cool. I get that, right? Not that, like... Yeah. There's a difference between telling me that and then telling me, like, things that are just either really false... Or like just stereotyping people in maybe a major city. Uh, I mean, it's just stuff like that. Well, there's also real fucking nice in the summer and fall. Though. And that's, look, 
I, I have researched Minnesota because again, doesn't mean I'm, I think there are people who are just assuming that I'm leaving and that's not true, but I researched it because I needed to research the place I was getting licensed and everything points to being really nice in Minnesota. <laughs> like I, I, it just kind of blew my mind that people, you know, just automatically went to being so negative about a place that maybe they've not even been a lot like what people do to Appalachia. Uh, <laughs> that's my whole point. That's that was it's a big um big pillar of this show <laughs> conceptually speaking for sure. It's you know and I don't know where that comes from. Some people is probably like maybe they had a bad experience there, which definitely happens. Uh, and but I think the whole kind of idea behind a lot of this show anyway is that places are more complex than one person's opinion or one stereotype or one experience and so you have to keep that in mind keep some perspective yeah and and really i don't have beef with a particular person this week which doesn't always happen but it's and this really isn't a beef to people the people who dm me like don't feel bad if you dm me saying this stuff it's really just one of those things like i i don't think it's fair for me to like sit silent when that stuff's coming in when the entire premise and the reason that this show's been successful is that we've literally fought against people doing that to Appalachia. It's just, and that's really what I wanted to spend time doing is not to reprimand or talk down to somebody who sent that. It's just to be like, you know, this is why this is important and why we shouldn't talk like that. Truth. Truth. Minnesota probably has their own JD Vance. <laughs> that's true. We, we don't want to reinforce that. I don't know if that was the best way of, of bookending your argument, but there it is, and I said it. So. <laughs> well, anyway, I, I think that's a very uh, very noteworthy beef and one that, despite it being about the Midwest, was quite topical about Appalachia. So kudos to that. Hats off to you. You already have your hat off, so it's perfect. <laughs> anyway, thank you all for listening and for joining us. Um, make sure that if you're not already subscribed, you uh, go to all the things and follow us on all the social medians. Make sure you vote, and uh, or not vote, excuse me. Actually, if you're in Virginia, please do vote, because early voting happens right now. Uh, but please uh, submit your nominations for the award show, all that jazz. We're going to be doing that uh, later in the year. Did we announce and, the uh, date? Thank you, and we will... Uh, uh, the cutoff date. October 30th is the cutoff for nominations. October 30th. You have a month. Um, but anyway, I don't know. most people probably don't even listen this far in anyway, so whatever. <laughs> I'll throw it in somewhere else. All right, well, thank you, and uh, we'll see you back next week. Apod Latch is a production of 18 Husky Media. The views expressed on this show are solely that of the hosts, John and Chuck, and do not reflect the opinions or viewpoints of their employers.